When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the stars from The Boys in the Boat, Callum Turner and Joel Edgerton, and Daniel Howitt's interview with the film's screenwriter, Mark L. Smith. There are some moments in life you never forget. Depression hit everyone hard. No jobs, no food. We were broke. Looks like you still owe a balance on this semester. So what, what's that about making some money? Yeah, the rowing team. Your Honor, you get a part-time job included, you place to live. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. Most of you will not be chosen. Beautiful speech, coach. Bye, mate. How are you? I'm doing all right. Am I uh, talking to you from L.A. or are you? Uh... I'm in L.A. I'm in uh, the Four Seasons. Oh, okay. That's uh, I, I have not stayed there. I've been there to eat, though. So it's uh, where, where are you? I'm here in L.A. too. Oh, you are. I'm not keeping you on some insane I'll, time difference. I'll wipe to you wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna hit it somehow. <laughs> okay. Well, first off, I mean. <laughs> One thing that always impresses me with you you in these uh, films like this and just generally is you completely bury that accent. In this particular case, you're, you're portraying an American uh, who's a coach from Washington State. In this case and really across the board, how do you so naturally suppress the Australian accent? <laughs> I, I don't really know. I, I like to kind of find a good reference and make sure that um... – I'm always uh, opening up uh, to somebody to tell me that I'm messing up. Um, usually that's the boom operator in the sound department or a dialect coach. And um, for this one, I, I think, you know, just in order to find a bit of specificity and something interesting, we, you know, a lot of my conversations with George early on were really about how this film had a kind of a, it's kind of a throwback feeling about it. You know, you see it in the romance within the film as well, even the way they kiss each other. It's like an old movie. And um, and just sort of thinking about performance on that level, you know, that a lot of performance of movies in decades gone by weren't really laboured in, in certain ways that we look at today and just sort of leaning into that just a little bit, you know. But anyway, I appreciate that you... Um, feel like my Australian accent doesn't creep through because it's one of the greatest fears of mine is that people are like, yeah, his accent was all over the place. <laughs> hey, as uh, as as an uh, American who's grown up hearing those accents my whole life, you know, it's pretty seamless. So 
You mentioned you didn't want the performance to seem pretty labored. And I think uh, the character you're playing, interesting guy, because it seems like he's kind of, he's in a uniquely stressful situation. As the film goes on, we see this stress grow and grow with him until, you know, he's, he's actively shouting at some of the rowers while they're, uh, while they're training and stuff. Tell me a little bit about kind of getting under the skin of this guy, this, uh, this man who really wants to have a lot of control and dignity and who's also really struggling with the, the burden he's shouldering of bringing this team on. I, I was once a co- I was once a coach of a, a very junior basketball team. Uh, and I have been coached by many, uh, mostly men in my life, various sports. And, um, and I've watched a lot of sport. And there's always something fascinating about coaches is that there's two things that really stand out to me is a lot of the really uh, great coaches look like they're having no fun. They look really stressed. They look like they're on the verge of a stroke or a heart attack. And the other thing is the way they uh, they appear to be like dads to me, like tough love, da- tough love dads, and that their warmth shines through usually <laughs> after a victory um, or when someone's injured. You can see the tenderness, but they look like tough, tough kind of emotional walls. And that that really fascinated me, is this, this idea that as a coach there's a powerlessness to it. You can put in all the work, you can inspire kids, you can make them train and you can push them to their limit. But once the uh, game starts or the whistle blows or the gun's fired, you're on the sideline and you're trapped. You're not in the game. And I think that's really stressful because it's a lack of control all of a sudden. And so I think there's a real tension that exists in these coaches, you know. But the 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 kind of like they look like they hate being their aspect is actually the opposite. I think it's they care too much and they care about the sport, the team and victory so much that they look like they are very unhappy. And I was like, I want to play that guy. <laughs> so I think it's interesting because you yourself are uh, an actor who has written and directed just like George Clooney is. So tell me a little bit about kind of being directed by uh, someone like you who really understands what it's like to be on kind of both sides of the camera like this. Well, the best you could hope for when you get directed by an actor is you get all of their wealth of knowledge um, harnessed into an amazing vision without being uh, led by an, an actor director who's going to tell you, like, if I were you, this is how I would act in this moment or, or how I would play this character. Because there, there is a risk that a really great actor might see a better way through a character and, and impose their um, vision on it, on you in a way that makes you feel a bit, you know, trestled up. And and George is certainly not that. I think he had a lot of faith in, in us, me and, and the rest of the cast. And in the, the right time just sort of allowed us to sort of uh, get steered along into this vision, particularly, you know, in moments where, he was allowing us to sort of lean into the old school movie version of this story, see the periodness of it, um, which I really appreciated. Uh, the, the funniest thing though is like George is a massive movie star, and the first couple of weeks I had to get used to the fact that he was just walking around with headphones on and you know his headset and his jeans, and I was like, shouldn't 
I mean, if you, the studio, I mean, shouldn't they really put him in front of the camera? But that he, he that he loved the story enough that he was willing to undergo the whole year of the process of directing a movie about this story um, without, you know, uh, taking the glory in front of the camera, which meant that he obviously could have done many other things, but he chose to do this meant a lot. Yeah. No, that is really neat. You know, you mentioned uh, kind of old school uh, movie styles. So I think there's, um, you deliver, I don't want to call it an earnest speech. It's it's kind of the first time we meet you, but there is this big speech. You, you have a couple, I guess, but the first kind of introduction to your character is this whole speech that sums up basically the Herculean effort that uh, crew rowing is. And yeah. it's... Uh, you know, it's it, it's an interesting way to get introduced to your character because you're just matter matter of factly telling them how much basically the sport sucks to go through and that they're probably not going to make it. They're yeah, probably going to so, file again. Yeah, you know, it's a, that it seems like a probably a pretty difficult monologue because our impression of your character is pretty much going to be shaped going forward by that speech. So tell me a lot, a little bit about kind of nailing that introduction moment. Well, apparently, uh, I, thankfully, George didn't tell me this during the shoot because, you know, we had had lots of conversations about the tough love aspect of, of Coach Overton and and that at the right time just to show a tiny bit of warmth to them, which I do towards the end of the movie and let them know that I'm proud of them, will say volumes. But in order to make that feel uh, better received, I guess, that it would be kind of cool to play this coach that's basically just his speeches are like boring. Like you guys like lane five is like terrible win. We're probably going to lose, but if you do <laughs> this, this and this, we might have a chance, you know, like all factual, all based on numbers and statistics, but certainly not the rebel rousing speeches we expect from coaches. And uh, apparently, uh, well, whether whether George is telling me the truth or not, that the studio were looking at dailies, just going like, "God, it's really grim," and he's really uh, he just looks really cranky. And I'm like, <laughs> that's exactly what we were trying to do. Is like, it, I didn't want to be this uh, open hearted coach from the, from the get go. I think we needed to get there, and the journey was about getting there. So. I'm glad George didn't tell me that if that's true because I would have been terrified that they wanted to fire me or that I would have had to, like, crack more smiles or something. Yeah, yeah, you find out. It's like, oh, yeah, you gave us the idea to put George in front of the camera. Now we're going to do that. Yeah, suddenly George is like, give me a costume. I'll do this. I'm going to do it today and for every other day, and you can go home. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joel. It's been great talking to you, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad more people are going to get to enjoy your performance in this film. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're announcing the team today. Are you going to make it? We rode out of need. Come on, boys. The need to stay in school. The need to eat, to sleep. We got to keep these right as long as we stay on the team. Washington Huskies coach is bringing an inexperienced vote to competition. They said we couldn't compete with the richest schools in the nation. The Washington vote has taken the lead. Washington has done it. I got nine seconds under the course record. Olympic year this year. Olympic year? I didn't realize. That bunch of kids load like no one else that's ever come through here. Everybody else tires and it just gets stronger. We have a boat that I believe could qualify for an Olympic spot. Hope you know what you're doing. They said we couldn't beat the Germans. We gotta beat those other schools first, but coach says we have a shot. Maybe we can roll as a team. 
if you guys don't get yourselves figured out, you're not racing at all. The boys, that boat, Saiga. But they didn't understand who we were. The show was in this book. Great to meet you. Thanks for taking time to chat with me. Yeah, you as well, Daniel. Yeah. Excited to hear about The Boys in the Boat. There's a million sports movies out there. Tough to find something unique to bring to the genre. But you did have a unique opportunity here in that there aren't a lot of rowing movies. <laughs> so was that was that part of what brought you to the project? It was. It was it was the idea of the I'm a I'm a huge sports film fan. And so um it was I've I've been looking for one to do, and I've been actually kind of getting close on a few, but when George brought me this one it was the idea of a, a sports film which all the they're hard to find a sports story which is about more than just the sport itself you know and yeah. this one was so much more about the you know about these kids about these young men and the world at that time and how you know the sport itself was almost just a vehicle you know for survival and for you know that kind of thing more than just like let's get this championship team together and win something. You know, it, it, there was so much more at stake. And so, uh, yeah. That's great. An adaptation of Daniel Brown's book has been in the works for, for well over a decade now. Uh, when did you start working on the project? George, we were doing, we just started pre-production on uh, Midnight Sky, which he had done. And it was like, actually, I think our first meeting on Midnight Sky, and we were talking about that. And he said, I also have this book. And so he said, asked if I'd be interested. And the one of the downsides to like writing to, you know, for a living is that um, you don't always get to read what you want to read. You know, it's like you're, I'm, I'm always reading what's being sent to me and I miss out on a lot of good things. Somehow, despite people all around my, you know, in my bubble telling me, oh, you know, through the years, oh, this boy's in the boat. It's, it's, this book is so amazing and everything. So I finally read it and he, they said that there'd been other drafts and, you know, previous over the years, but they asked me not to look at them. And so I just kind of went into it with a, my own clear vision of like how to, how to pull it off. And I think it's such a sprawling story. It's so many characters and over such a time, such a large time period in the book itself that everything, my little magic bullet for it was, was to condense instead of having it happen over a five-year period, it's like, okay, we're going to do this in one year. And we're not going to meet all the guys that were on it on sophomore year and then left and all of this. There was just no way to do it. There was a way to do that in like a six-episode limited kind of thing, and um, but not as a feature. And um, even as it was, I wrote, you know, I, I, I made George's day harder because I, I wrote probably like a three-hour movie, you know, my, my first draft because – there was so much story to tell and so much character. And then he had to figure out a way to, cause he shot most of that. And, but then it was a three hour movie. And, and so then it was, you know, up to him. He had to, he had to start pulling and everything to, you know, cut it down and make it sleek and fast. But it was um, the biggest challenge was just the number of characters and the amount of time that passed in the book. And so once we kind of tried to focus on certain things, it worked. Was that a discussion to make it a, a limited series or was this always, this was always a movie? It was always a movie. We we discussed it, and Daniel Brown and I especially used to talk about it. And um, and then I think because it was MGM, just MGM, I think at that point, whenever I got involved, and um, it was 2020 when I wrote it. So I think MGM it was always going to be. They just always wanted to do it as a as a feature. That's, That's cool. It. 
Uh, that's interesting to hear you having conversations with with Dan Brown. I, I want to hear more about that. I, I want to hear about your research process when you have a nonfiction story here, but you do have a book that is in a narrative form. Um, what's, what's the balance between taking, taking the book and there's your narrative versus doing further research to flesh out the story? A lot of, a lot of my research was, I mean, Dan did such an amazing job in the book as far as the details of the story. Um, my thing was just trying to talk to people and talk to Dan and talk to, and looking up other things to find, to understand the sport a little more so that I would, even though he did, you know, I just wanted to be able to feel it and watch it and stuff so that I would, you know, the sounds that the oar is making. And because I get very detailed whenever I'm writing like action race scenes, any, any kind of action scene. So um, I needed to know that. And then it was just to try to get, find their voices, the the voice voices in my head, because so much of the story had all the beats laid out and the events laid out and, and where they came from and stuff. But the actual interactions, you know, that was like where you know, the cheating came like with the love interest, the relationship and stuff. It was, you know, just tweaking those things a little bit from the book and just trying to always the most important. I just love the book so much. This was the very, my most favorite thing I've written. And I just, it was during the pandemic. And um, so I was locked away and my wife and kids were in one, one place and one home. And I was, stuck there and just the way it had happened while I was started writing. And I, I kept saying, I'll, I'll come, I'm, I'll be there in a little bit, but I just kept writing. I didn't want to leave. I got on such a roll and I was listening to all my made a boys in the boat playlist and would listen to the music. And it was like from the natural and reverence through it. And you know, all these and sea biscuit and all this stuff, but I was so into it and I loved it so much that I, I remember writing the race scenes and I realized that I was rowing. You know, it's like, as I'm writing, I'm doing these stroke because it was like, it was such a thing. I just love the story. And so, yeah, it was, the, the whole thing was like a gift for George to give it to me. It was just, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, you, you mentioned shrinking the story down from five years into one one season. What what were some of the other tweaks you had to make to the facts of the story to to make it fit the narrative of a film? I don't think I changed many of the other facts. I think it, they, they actually all, you know, it's one of those very unusual, but very fortunate things where they, they kind of fall into place. You know, it's like, it was um, everything I'm trying to really, other than just guys that were juniors, make them freshmen or just, you know, that, that was kind of it. Everything else, the races and in the, in the script, there were, there were a few more early races as they were kind of finding their legs and stuff, you know, and, but you know, again, in a two-hour movie, you can only have so you can only spend so much time on the water, and um, and so, but I tried to keep a timeline and everything. Now I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good on this one. I didn't cheat a lot. That's great. That's great. Well, there's so many, uh, so many of, of the boys there. What makes Joe Rance such a compelling main character? Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey 
to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. He was the perfect character for this story. Perfect kid to put in a boat where the whole, the only way it works is if you trust everyone around you and it's like the ultimate team sport because no matter how fast you can row, no how much endurance you have, if you're not doing it exactly in time with everyone else, and it you know it's it doesn't work. And so for Joe and his background, where you know his mother died when he was very young, and then his father remarried, and they had two young children, and they kind of forgot about Joe and pushed away and and moved away when he was just very young, fourteen years old, and he was on his own and. So he just became someone that that didn't trust anyone but himself. You know, it was like that that was the only way he he knew to survive was was him. So for to put him in that boat, you know, and make him not only learn the skill of rowing like the other boys, but actually the trust and everything. It's just he was he was the guy, man. It was like he was you couldn't have you just couldn't have just cherry picked a better character to build this kind of story. Well, I'm I'm curious. You you've kind of hinted at this earlier. In any sports movie, there's an inherent enjoyment from just watching the sport, like just kind of seeing it play out. In this case, watching the competitions, the races. But how do you balance that 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 enjoyment of just watching the sport versus the human drama? How do you know when you have enough of each and it's not counterbalanced? Where oh, we're we're just enjoying this because we're just watching the sport. Right. This one, I was trying to to make sure that the stakes were different than a, you know, they're not playing for a, it's not a Super Bowl where they're just hoping to get a trophy. It's not a, you know, even just a, you know, any other kind of sport. We're trying to win a ribbon or win a prize or, or anything. It's, they got into this because they wanted a place to sleep and they needed food and they, and so the stakes were so much higher for, for them as far as what's, you know, what they got into this sport for and and so it was always easy to fall back on that and that these kids were different and then it just naturally built into the narrative of this group of underdogs these guys that have kind of you know just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps as they would say and those those guys against the ivy league guys which are they really are you know back then there was really no sport bigger than than rowing and so everyone went you know, they were trained early and the money was spent. And so for these guys to go against them, it was just kind of the perfect, it was a very Seabiscuit kind of thing. And Dan Brown and I used to talk about that, that it was, you know, that how the country wrapped their arms around this kind of underdog, you know, and um, so it kind of, it just worked perfectly. Well, this is your second time writing a film for George. Uh, what, what, what's your relationship like as writer and director? It's uh, I think it's, it's, it's good. I, He's such, he's just such a, an excellent guy, just a good guy, very thoughtful and, um, and considerate of like the writing, which is nice. And, and he just, we had a lot of discussions. He trusts, he trusted me, I guess maybe because going, you know, he came on, I'd written Midnight Sky and then George came on to that one. And so I think maybe he trusted and knew that I would be okay. So he, he just told me to, he gave me the freedom to go and run with it and on boys and to kind of make these changes, you know, and, and really streamline it. And we, we're, we're kind of close. He, he, 
we're not that far off. I mean, the first draft that I gave him, I think, I think I mentioned to you that it was like 160 pages. It was, and because it had so much. And so, but we kind of went off of that draft, that original draft, but just had to really kind of trim it down in the edit. And so um, now he's, that guy's, that guy's wonderful. Well, your IMDb page has 16 projects listed in development and uh oh. and i'm sure those are in all sorts of different states of development but there's such a wide variety in your produced work as well a wide variety of, of genres and, and types of stories is there a through line to the sorts of stories or projects that you gravitate toward no i mean it's it's like i like i mean obviously i start with like the character where the you know if that's something that i want to spend time with and i I do like s- normally small stories kind of in big worlds. I don't, mm. I don't love, I don't think I would be a great, you know, like a Marvel kind of mm-hmm. writer, um, that kind of thing. And I started off in like horror because I'd written some dramas and things that sold and, and everything, but we just couldn't get made. And so horror then was getting made. And so I wrote those and that's kind of, and then I kind of got, where oh he writes horror and but that really was just kind of a a tool you know to get to get me kind of get some momentum but no i i think it's you know there is a lot of there is a lot of stuff that i write that has to do with like, like loss i find that there's you know it's it's the risk of loss it's that you it's avenging a loss it's a parent child thing there that's i find i do find whether it's i guess unconsciously maybe it's uh the I do gravitate toward those stories that I, when I look back, there's a lot of, of that Mm. in my, in my stuff. Well, I I wish we had more time to, to dig into that. I'm very curious about that, but I I can't let you go without asking about twisters. I am just absolutely ecstatic for the movie, more than I ever thought I would be. I mean, you're writing it, Lee Isaac Chung, Daisy Edgar Jones, Glenn Powell. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. I hope you and I have a chance to talk more about that film next year, but but are you able to give us sort of a tease about what people can expect when they catch twisters in theaters this summer? It's going to be a lot of fun. And hopefully we've kind of, you know, we've tapped into the same vibe, that same energy, that same just kind of, you know, made it, you know, a 21st century version of, of what, you know, the original was as far as fun, exciting you know characters that you that you care about and um no it's 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 a wild ride and it is so cool when i started it joe kaczynski came up with this idea who did you know top gun maverick and he sent me the pitch his pitch and so then i said yeah i'd love to write that and so we wrote it with the plan of him uh directing but then he was the, he had a schedule conflict with F1, and we thought we were going to do Twister after that. But Steven uh, Spielberg was, he, and Frank, they were excited. They wanted to push forward with uh, with Twister. So we were lucky to get to Isaac. And Isaac was actually attached to another project of mine that we were getting ready to kind of really move forward on. And um, a smaller film. And he came to me and said, I'd just been on <laughs> Twister. And it was like, oh, man, well, I want you for this other one but i'm at least i'm trading you for one of my own so i can i can i don't mind it and so uh so then yeah so he came on and it just it just made it really cool i just love kind of 
his mentality, the way he's kind of approaching it, you know, because coming from a very small film to this big world. And um, I'm sure I was texting with him the other day and I know it's, there's some adventures, you know, and and everything, but he's, he seems to be having a good time. And so uh, I think, I think it'll be good. Yeah. I think everyone will have fun. Yeah. And definitely let's, let's talk next July or whenever it is that it's supposed to open. I am yeah. very excited. So we will chat then. Well, Mark, uh, thank you again for your time. Appreciate hearing more about the boys in the boat. Can't wait for more people to see it. Okay. Yeah. No. Same. Thanks, Daniel, so much. Thank Pleasure. You. I don't believe what I'm seeing. Best boats. They're connecting. Sweat and pain. What is worth? I'm proud of you, boys. Inspiring. Uh, you missed the part where I told him not to tip over. And I won't. Roll for your country. Roll for each other. For all the people who never believed in you. As one. As one. How are you? I'm doing all right, Callum. So uh-huh. you're uh, also in LA right now, I take it? I am, yeah. Where are you? I, I am here in LA. So Hi. I. Uh... I was scared that you and Joel were going to be uh, talking to me at some ungodly uh, hour because of the time zone. Like 4 a.m. or something. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> I've done that to people across the pond before, and I always feel terrible about it. So, yeah. So, um, you know, the first thing I asked Joel is uh, both of you guys do a great job burying your accents in this. Mm. And uh, I, I have to imagine that that's not easy. So, um. Tell me a little bit about first off, kind of finding the right voice to give this character. Uh, well, first off, I work with a dialect coach called Brett Tyne, and uh, she's one of the most incredibly talented human beings on this earth. And we looked at people like Gary Cooper mm. um, in High Noon, especially, uh, and Mr. Deeds, um, and Spencer Tracy, you know, people of the era and the time, and the essence and the cadence that they would have. Um, and then a lot uh, really was Woody Guthrie, who oh. music I adore. This land is your land. Is, I listen to that every morning before we started, just oh. uh, reignite the feeling of Joe Rance inside of me. Also, it's just a really beautiful song to have in the trailer in the morning. Good way to start your day. And yeah, just, um, you know, that you're right. The cadence is is so important, but also the feeling of the person, you know, with two different people and Joe doesn't really like to talk, mm. you know, and so he will do anything to, you know, hide or just get through. And um, that was something that we channeled to. All right. Well, I have to mention that you say you like Woody Guthrie. I'm a, I'm a big folk guy myself. And so I actually have some of his and then uh, Pete Seeger's stuff on vinyl, which is. Oh, nice. Though. You don't encounter You're many vinyl, huh? of, uh, old school folk. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Woody Guthrie was uh he was the he epitomized the time and really the, the the essence of him as someone that moved around America and was forced to resonated with me for Joe. You know, Joe was abandoned by his by his dad numerous times um and had to, you know, I think he was four years old, he got on a train um and went across America to go live with his aunt for a bit, you know, and Woody Guthrie had to do the same thing. Beyond the Woody Guthrie aspect. Uh, you, uh, as I understand it, you and the rest of the team had to really train like actual professional crew rowers to get into the oh, show yeah. and pull this off. Tell me a little bit about that. It was insanity. I mean, you know, rowing is an incredibly beautiful and rewarding sport. 
we just didn't realize at the time, you know, we were, <laughs> we, we, none of us had rode before. Um, and, you know, learning a new skill is, is difficult enough, but then having to be in tune with everyone else in the boat and move in sync and unison uh, to achieve what you're trying to achieve, just, uh, it just made it just a little bit harder. We managed to do it. It was funny because we, we, you know, we rode four hours a day for two months straight you know and then worked out and we ate together and we 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 went back home together and we hung out together watched movies together and we really built the idea of a you know professional sports team um i watched this documentary going for gold probably like 10 times and it's about Redgrave, uh his last hurrah i think it's in sydney um when he's going for his last gold he's you know the greatest Olympian that England and the UK has ever produced. And uh, we just tried to channel that really. And, and, and that work ethic and it's something, you know, like basketball, your star player can win the game for you, but in rowing, it's, it's, all, it's all about the boat, you know, and it has to be in complete unison. Otherwise it, it just won't work. And, uh, and you could feel that too, you know, and there was this competitive nature that I think is inherent in every sports team in order to 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 win it's there's a survival mechanism at play too uh and you know we we rowed a lot we had the jack and i especially went at each other a few times when we thought we knew better than the other both times we were both of us were wrong and you know there was just something really special about it joe rance says at the beginning of the or he says to dan who wrote the book uh when dan asked if he could write the book about him he said no you can't write the book about me but you can write a book about the boat, mm. you know, and it's really about the boat, this film and, and what this boat goes off and achieves, obviously the people through it, but you know, it's about them being together. And at the end of the film, he says, we were never eight, we were one. And that's oh, yeah. how we felt. We really felt like we were together on this. That's really beautiful. What other- I, know, I know, I know. I wish there was like other stories that I could tell you that were like, <laughs> hate each other but we did we love each other <laughs> i realized i went I, I i developed a deeper love for rowing a deeper there was a, a more profound experience than i i thought i had you're gonna keep trying to do it now that the movie's over no and the reason i'm not gonna try and do it is because i did it with these guys yeah. you know and uh, i i ain't gonna do it with them again i i, I, I and there's not gonna be george clooney on a speedboat alongside us <laughs> glass of wine telling us to do it better you know yeah so was george clooney your coxswain in real life he was the coach really i guess the director is always the coach huh yeah yeah have you rode before <laughs> no i ran cross country which is basically the opposite of this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like solitary just me activities so. yeah, but that's pretty difficult man i tried to do 5k the other day and i did four i looked at my dog i was like nah, it's, only- <laughs> it's only four today bud Okay, well, I, uh, I I admire the effort. Well, so one other thing about your character that's pretty interesting is that he's, um, you mentioned this earlier, he's pretty quiet. And this is a character who suffered a lot and he continues to suffer and he continues to shoulder a lot of stress throughout the film. But mm-hmm. it's, um, he, he's pretty subtle in how he displays it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I imagine that as an actor is harder to do than just letting your grief and sorrow and anger show. So tell me about kind of, playing this guy who has to really manage his emotions well you know the trick is 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 that i learned on this through you know with Clooney and with george and grant was i could want to do it and that would read 
Mm. So if I if there's a moment where I want to hit a guy, don't hit him, but you want to hit him, and that means and that shows more um, in in on camera. I, there's something about the time too, you know, in, in the 30s, men didn't talk about their emotions and their feelings. They just got on with it. And, and you know, testament to Joe, the thing that I adore about the man is that he, at 13, was abandoned by his by his dad. You know, he came home from school, cars running, and everyone's in it. His dad's on the porch. He says, where are we going? And his dad says, we're going, you're not. And he was 13. And he made the decision the next day to pull up his boots, and he wasn't going to let that define him. And he went on and achieved truly uh incredible things you know he did not only the, the winning gold at the olympics but he also went and was an engineer for boeing and had a hugely successful beautiful life with, with the woman that he loved and um created a family and, and and there's something so special about what he was able to do from where he came from and i just find that so inspiring you know no that uh that really is inspiring uh, last question. I think Joel mentioned that even the that everything about how you guys played your characters was meant to be inspired by how people would have performed in the 1930s, basically, and that includes how you kiss. What did he mean by that in this case? I don't know. Joel and I didn't kiss. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean with Joel. <laughs> I think it was more of it being observation. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the, the movie is a throwback and we lean into the idea of that old school Hollywood film picture, I guess they would call it. And, and um, you know, that kiss when I come off the train is meant to be one of those sweeping moments, you know, and and, and it's designed like that, George. It's all George's idea. And um, yeah, we tried, we, we tried to do like this, you know, emotional, but it, it just didn't make sense, you know, keep the tongues in the mouth and just be romantic. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Callum. And thank, uh, you, you, know, thank you. Yeah. And uh, best of luck going forward and continuing to let everyone see this film. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Navity's interviews with the two stars from the film The Boys in the Boat, Joel Edgerton and Callum Turner, here on the Next Best Picture podcast, along with Daniel Howitt's interview with screenwriter Mark L. Smith. The Boys in the Boat is now currently playing in theaters from Amazon MGM Studios. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema. Cinema. 
our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.